Hey guys, and welcome to the Abundance Alchemist podcast. I'm Caitlin Dorsey, an Abundance Alchemist, animal lover, trauma survivor to thriver, mindset expert, self-love junkie, and author. This is the place to be to grab those powerful tools, ideas, and inspiration to make lasting changes in yourself and your life. No more waiting, my friends, because it's time to show up unapologetically, radiate that confidence, and create a life you absolutely love. Time to buckle up and dive on in. Uh, hello, my high-vibing friends. I'm so excited you're here. And as always, I have an amazing guest we're going to chat with today. Today, we're going to be talking with Zane Landon. He graduated from Cal Poly, Poly Pomona. Is that it? Okay. With the Bachelor's of Science in Communications and Public Relations. He worked at places like USAID and NASA and General Motors. He's a mental health and disability advocate, queer rights activist, entrepreneur, and positive change maker. He identifies as Hispanic, queer, and disabled, and he is the founder of Positive Vibes Magazine, a digital magazine dedicated to telling authentic stories about mental health, wellness, and inspiration, as well as the founder and the president of Landing Dreams PR, the consulting business working with media and mental health advocates. Kids. Zane is passionate as a passionate storyteller who regularly writes about wellness, psychology, and culture for the power of positivity, entrepreneur, and Lady Gaga's channel kindness. Um, his work has appeared in over 50 platforms like Seek the Joy Podcast, Forbes, BuzzFeed, and Coming from the Heart. So welcome to the podcast, Zane. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. So I always start by kind of, I know your or your bio was really impressive, um, but I always kind of just ask how you got to do what you're doing today. My goodness, there's a lot to my bio, and so I wonder where to start. I will say that, <clears throat> you know, starting with the communications angle, I've always been kind of inspired by stories and storytelling, but not also just how they're on the screen, but how we can use storytelling to be advocates and to make, you know, systemic change in the world. And I do think that communications and storytelling is sometimes underplayed, like it's not as important in the world of advocacy, even though it very much is, because without communication, how would your policies even get to people? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's a really important part. And so when people ask me like, what do I do as a mental health advocate? I'm like, of course I advocate for changing the landscape of mental health, but <clears throat> also using communication and how we do that. How do we do that with communications? How do we build community with that? Um, and so that's kind of what I do with, in the mental health sphere, but I'm also, you know, a disability advocate and that, that bio is a little a little old. I will say that one thing mm -hmm. I've been doing lately that's been really exciting is I'm actually uh, working for the National Geographic Society. Oh, amazing. So, which is National Geographic. It's under the National Geographic brand, but that's I work for the nonprofit side, which mm -hmm. actually funds the explorers. So if you ever hear if someone is actually a named explorer from National Geographic, yes, they're a grantee and they're actually like a distinguished um, explorer from National mm -hmm. Geographic Society, Very which cool. is really cool. And so I don't do anything of that. I don't also do any photography because I know that's always my first question is, are you a photographer? <laughs> no. Gosh, no, that's not that that's bad, but it's like, that's incredibly difficult to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and I'm, I've done some photography, but nothing like that. I mean, it's always just been fun and interesting, mm -hmm. but I always get that, that, that comment or that question every time mm -hmm. I tell people that I'm like, no, actually I do internal communications. Mm -hmm. it sounds super exciting, but it is. I think it's really exciting. I, mm -hmm. I love the job I'm in. I think it's really great. A lot of it is, you know, making sure that <clears throat> we are always communicating internally. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that I'm producing, you're not really going to see it because it's not external communication. So you won't see any articles I get to write. But I get to write articles on different company-wide news. I get to communicate with a bunch of partners in different departments. I get to feature employee voices. So I do think it is like advocating for the employee, 
Mm-hmm. And I do think that if your internal communications role is not touching on like empowering employees and creating like wellness opportunities, I do think that there's a lot more to explore in your internal communications role. I don't think it's just about sending a message. It's mm-hmm. also it's about building an internal community. And it's very difficult for, I think, companies to thrive and flourish if they don't have a strong internal communications mm-hmm. department or strategy, because how in the world are they going to stay cohesive if they don't know what every part is doing? And you don't need to know every single what every department's doing. But having a good idea is where you can create synergy and collaboration through that. So yeah, it's kind of the work I'm doing professionally. I love that. I think you hit on such a beautiful point with bringing that piece of storytelling into um, really right now in your role, kind of working with the employees and highlighting that. And I think that it's so important. Um, part of my career and job is I work with a company um, that they pair peer coaches for uh, with clinicians and I'm a clinician. So, um, but the idea of peer coaching is exactly that, like the power in storytelling and being able to give other people that voice and advocate for them and um, really highlight these different aspects. And so I hear so much of kind of the power of what you're talking about, of being able to do that inside National Geographic is, um, mm-hmm. wow, really impressive. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's really exciting. And, and I'm, you know, grateful that it's my first job out of university. Cause I got the mm-hmm. job in May of 20, sorry, I got the job in November of 2022 and I graduated in May so it took a little hiatus. Um, wasn't intentional. I definitely had some things lined up. Like I, I guess I had that internship at General Motors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had free, so I couldn't work there. And then I did a consulting job for a couple months. And then I eventually found my way, yes, to National Geographic, which has been really exciting. I think the scary thing has been like just kind of moving because I was from mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. And in January, I moved all the way to Washington, D.C. It's a big move from the edge to the edge of the country. And so... Mm-hmm. I almost kind of convinced myself that the job wasn't for me, that I could, I could thrive here in Cal, I could thrive there in California and I would learn just as much. Um, I decided not to because I think that was going to hold me back from more opportunity. And it really has. Mm-hmm. If I really decided to stay, I wouldn't be where I am at all. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean that's, that doesn't mean that it would have been a bad thing, but right. I do think that where I am right now is where I'm supposed to be. And it's a good challenging moment, even if it is kind of scary to, live with my partner and it's just us and I don't really mm-hmm. know anyone in, in a new city even within a year I still it's so hard to kind of finagle your way in mm-hmm. yeah especially with COVID my goodness that has added some challenges but um and Washington DC so one of the things that kind of drew me to having you on the podcast was um I saw that you had a, a really cool opportunity to go to the White House and talk about and advocate for mental health so I'd love to hear about kind of what that was like um and kind of what your message was very funny because that was in May of 2022, literally the, okay. And sorry, what you're referring to is the uh, mental health youth action forum. Mm-hmm. I want to give context to what it is. First. Sure. And it was, you know, the first ever mental health youth action forum. And I'm sure they've had many forums, but I think this is the first time that the white house really sat down and hosted a forum on youth intersectional mental health. Mm. And it was planned solely by MTV. Mm. And uh, it was also like, they had a lot of partners with like probably, I can't really say, I think it was like 12 to 15 nonprofits. And that was kind of what drew me to it because, you know, when I first saw it, I was like, is this, is this real? Like mm-hmm. I met the forum at the white house. Is this real? Is it actually going to be at the white house? So I didn't know, I didn't know much about MTV. I didn't know mm-hmm. 
stakes were involved with them. I didn't really know much about them as an organization except their TV shows and music videos. Mm-hmm. But I saw that their partners were like Jed Foundation, like Active Minds, like National Alliance of Mental Illness. I'm like, okay, these are prominent mental health nonprofits, like organizations. And so I know that there's like, there's a serious, there's a serious strand here. And I really want to be a part of this. Um, so I decided to apply in November and it was something that was really exciting, but it was also kind of nerve wracking because mm-hmm. I was, I honestly convinced myself that I wasn't going to get it mm-hmm. because I didn't think I would. I just, you know, I had that thought in my head and I think a lot of people do, but I kind of just had to like get over, you know, my ego and just say like, I need to apply for this. This is the thing I need to do. And so I did do it. And eventually after a couple applications, I was able, I was selected mm-hmm. and yeah, it was kind of a, I don't know. It felt kind of euphoric at first. Oh no, mm-hmm. it was very euphoric, but it felt like a dream at first because it didn't feel kind of real. And so even when I first found out, I kind of didn't have an expression. I was like kind of mm-hmm. expressionless because I didn't really know how to react. And I think it took me like a good maybe four, three to five minutes to keep reading through the email to mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of my situation. And after I kind of came out of that little trance, I probably had, I was just beyond excited, beyond grateful. And then in the months leading to May, because that was in February when I found out, we just kind of had a lot of group sessions with all the other advocates because they chose 29 other young people. Wow. And so we discussed like just tons of things about mental health. We learned about one another. We met people from the White House, from MTV, from their social impact program. We also got to work with, we had mentors that came from those nonprofits. So I got mm-hmm. a lot of connections from all these nonprofits. And I, what I also loved is that they didn't partner with just mental health organizations, but mental health organizations that specialize in specific communities. Mm. So they had one that was all about indigenous mental health. They had one that was all about Asian mental health. I think it was the Asian mental health collective. And so they're really like trying to drive the force of intersectionality at, at this and like trying to really address mental health from a holistic standpoint, rather mm-hmm. than kind of a singular one, which is what has kind of been like in the past, especially with a lot of, a lot of movements have been like that, mm-hmm. but yeah. So then, like I said, the forum happened in May and that was super exciting. And what's, what's kind of funny is like, I, it's just interesting that, you know, I went to the White House and I was like, not the White House. I went to like, you know, Washington DC when I was in middle school. And mm-hmm. then, but it's interesting to come back to be invited to the White mm-hmm. House. And then, and then not even a couple, probably like six months later, I actually get the opportunity to move there. And so <laughs> it was like a calling that I was always maybe going to come here, which is, it's just, it's a nice familiar site, even though if I've never been here before, it is kind of um, inspiring to just see some of these buildings mm-hmm. that you just kind of see on TV or you see in a textbook and you're like, they just, they're so historic mm-hmm. um, to see them. It's like, it's interesting how things have been untouched and yeah. how things just are the same of like when you saw them in your textbook. Now, of course, things have changed, um, but, just, but just seeing it, just visualizing it, it's such a different story. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, being in the White House, it was it was an interesting feeling because again, being invited is a different story. And then being invited and just walking through and we were just kind of walking through the white house and it's like, well, we're kind of walking fast. I'm like, we need to slow down. Like I want to mm. look at it because, and like, honestly, it wasn't too much. Cause I like, guess we're going through, it's just like the entrance part. There's like the sure. hallway. It's not like there's not a super ton of stuff, but still I wanted to soak up everything because and it was just weird to walk through it. I was like, we're actually in it. Oh, because we were we, how we were doing it, we were we were going through different buildings. I was like, "Are we in yet?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and finally, kind of got in. It was um, it was just it's just a weird feeling of like we're actually in. And again, I think sometimes we look at these places and people that they're bigger than life, but it's not. It's just 
mm-hmm. it's just a regular place. But it, I mean, I'm not I'm not downplaying it. I mean, it's sure. a very very important place with so much symbolism and meaning with tons of decisions that have been made there throughout history. Mm-hmm. But but you you get what I'm saying? Like in reality, it's like oh, it's this is just a place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to be here in this space where like, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln stood and made a decision here mm. or whatever happened, whatever, whatever history you can think of. A lot of it has been stemmed from there. Mm-hmm. It was exciting Absolutely. to kind of be a part of it and not like in a big way, like this is in the history books, but just being part of something like that is always super exciting. And also just to see that, you know, the White House took the dedication to commit itself to, you know, youth mental health, which is mm-hmm. not something the federal government has I don't think has really done before. And so it was really, really exciting to see. And I also think it was just a, I also think like, you know, they broadcasted the forum, you know, on television. And so I just imagine someone flipping through and maybe someone who's struggling and they see people candidly talking about their mental health experience, suicide, Mm -hmm. self-harm, a lot of serious topics that we don't really normally talk about because, Mm -hmm. and I understand why we don't, because it is scary, but we also need to, because if we start Mm -hmm. talking about it, it's going to, you know, save more lives. And there's a lot more work. It's not just about obviously talking. It's about changing a lot of different things. Like, you know, some of the equity issues with access to mental health. There's so many things. Mm -hmm. I think a good first step is actually talking about it and normalizing it and trying to remove Mm -hmm. the mental health stigma as much as possible. Um, And to, you know, be a small part of that conversation was um, just makes me really proud. And I really hope that again, whoever was looking through the channel, maybe they saw that. And that to me is, is, kind of immeasurable to see on TV again that young people are talking so openly about mental health and so at a national stage mm-hmm. about some vulnerable topics that we don't really normally hear about even when we talk about mental health sometimes it just scratches on the surface and mm-hmm. um, we don't really talk about some of the deeper stuff like again suicide self-harm those mm-hmm. thoughts because again it's too scary for some folks mm-hmm. but again if we don't talk and we don't kind of normalize these conversations it can lead to more suicides. Right. Yeah. That awareness is key, but, and I appreciate you sharing so much about that experience. It sounds incredible. And, and there was a topic that you touched on um, that I wanted to kind of circle back. Cause I think that if we're in this kind of field or this world of mental health and advocacy and, you know, kind of human services, we understand the term of intersectionality, but for our listeners, mm-hmm. what is intersectionality and how does it play a role in your life? Yeah, I, I would encourage people to um, definitely look up like the definition of intersectionality because how I'm going to define it is probably different. Sure. <laughs> um, but how I identify how I define intersectionality is like every single dynamic is unique, but it is central to our identity. So what I mean is like every dynamic, every identity that we have is important and it makes us who we are. And mm-hmm. so you mentioned my identity at the beginning. Um, like I said, if I'm queer, Hispanic, disabled, those three identities make up who I am mm-hmm. and the other identities that I do have. Um, and so someone who shares being queer with me, mm-hmm. if I'm disabled, they're not. It's not to say that someone is worse off. We just had different challenges and that inter- intersectionality makes those dynamics different. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it. Um, but definitely look up the definition because there's, <laughs> there's like an official definition. That's how I see it is that. Sure all the small parts make up make us who we are kind of like i said at the beginning like synergy it's kind of like mm-hmm. synergy with the workplace but instead of it being groups and one organization it's like different identities making you whole like mm-hmm. you're, it could be like you were one organization and your different identities are like different teams that's how i kind of see it and they each play a pivotal role in who you are 
I love that. I think that was a beautiful definition of it. I think um, you highlighted such a key concept or aspect of intersectionality with the fact that just because you have something in common with some, someone else, like even a mental health diagnosis, diagnoses mm-hmm. or struggle, it doesn't necessarily mean that that makes up a lot of the identity. And I think that's something that society gets so stuck on is we... Um, we kind of look at one aspect of someone, like you were saying, that singular view, and that's what we go after. And it is really beautiful to see a lot of these nonprofits and and like you're talking about, take a more of a holistic approach because we're not just a diagnosis. We're not just a label. We are all these beautiful pieces, like you said, that become an identity that we choose. And that impacts one, how we move forward and to the services that are appropriate for us. Like you're talking about, you know, self-harm and suicide. If you are, um, we're going to use you as an example, um, just because there was a service that may be specifically for a population that identifies as disabled doesn't mean that it'd be necessarily the best fit for you. Like you're talking about because you have other aspects of your identity of being queer and Hispanic. So I think that you highlighted some really beautiful roles of kind of that challenge. Yeah, and I hear a common phrase with, you know, the disability community and disability Mm -hmm. advocates that they say that their disability doesn't define them. So I think, I'm not going to speak for them, but for me, my disability does kind of define certain aspects of who I am, but I like that they're reframing it because, like you said, they have a disability, They people see it, and then they just associate that that person with, oh, they're just a disabled person. Mm-hmm. Better than, oh, they're a person with feelings, emotions, other identities who happens to have a disability. Right. So I like that they're reframing it as a way to empower them, that they're more than their label, that people have labeled them. Um, yeah. So I do like that. And that's another thing that when, you know, when, when you see someone and you might see that one identity, sometimes we're, we're visual and we see that, or, or when someone speaks and they have a non-apparent disability, you know, mm-hmm. they, that's also a factor as well. And so it's not just what you see, mm-hmm. of course it can be what you can't see. Cause there's a lot of, I mean, I mean, even being queer, like, you know, some people can't see that or they don't know and it's that doesn't really matter mm-hmm. what matters is you just kind of listen to their identity listen to what they have to say about their identity and you kind of just affirm and kind of validate their experience and if you don't understand that's honestly okay you don't have mm-hmm. to understand because we don't we're not always going to understand each other there are many people that are in circumstances i don't understand because i haven't been there that doesn't mean i can't try to understand and have empathy and ask them and also sometimes asking, you don't want to cross any boundaries. So sometimes you have to take it upon yourself to just do research because sometimes you want to put a person in a position where you're asking them personal questions and that makes them uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's also why it's nice that, you know, the internet is free and you can, you can, <laughs> can read about different resources because yeah. again, I don't mind, but like, they're not, they're not, they're not everyone's going to be comfortable talking about their mental health. So if someone says, yeah. Oh, I was diagnosed. And then you start asking all these personal questions about their mental health. That can be triggering. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, make sure that, you know, you're not asking personal questions, just like you might not want someone to ask you those kind of questions either. Uh, Zane, I appreciate you highlighting that and giving us that education. Cause I, I think, um, you know, so much of the education and, master's degree, bachelor's degree, as far as counseling, um, which again, is kind of just my background. So that's why I talk about that piece. But um, Mm -hmm. we talk about this idea of cultural competence, which is exactly what you're talking about. And we're talking about all these different pieces of 
one, you don't necessarily have to be an expert on everything because you're not going to, just like we talked about with intersectionality. I can't be an expert on how every single person in the world identifies and nobody's expecting that either. Um, and you also have a obligation to be respectful and to be appropriate in that. And I think that you highlighted a really big piece of, you know, if someone identifies different than someone else, it's not always appropriate to kind of ask that person. So it's, you know, finding that comfortability, understanding the role in the relationships. Um, but I think, you know, I had that a beautiful kind of situation that occurred for me where I had that exact um idea. And, and this, uh, it was actually one of my clients and, um, they identify with they, them, their pronouns. Um, and they were talking about kind of gender fluidity and, um, sexual orientation. And, um, I identify as a cisgender female, um, heterosexual. So that is not something that I personally understand to the extent of living in it. But at the same time, um, they were able to guide me without me, like pushing and asking those personal questions of, Hey, this is something I'm going through. And, they also said like, Hey, you know, I'm not even an expert in this community. I'm just like you did. I'm not going to speak for the entire community, but for me, it's this. And I think that you highlighted both of those pieces so beautifully in what you were just sharing. Yeah, no. And I, I think that's, um, that's true though. I don't think we should ever really look at someone as an expert unless they really have those mm -hmm. qualifications because lived experience is not expertise. Right. Um, Cause like, again, you can ask me, Oh, having a, um, major depressive disorder um, diagnosis, like, oh, how do you diagnose that? I don't know. I don't know any of that stuff. I'm not going to, I don't have degrees in that. I won't, mm -hmm. but this is my experience of how I, how I was diagnosed is what the DSM says. Mm -hmm. You have to hear that for yourself. And if that, I hope you don't self-diagnose, but I hope you, hopefully you have the means to see a psychologist or a therapist. There are, or a psychiatrist, there are like, you know, there are actually organizations that provide stipends if you really can't afford yep. it. Mm -hmm. Um, so opportunities are out there. It's sad that they're kind of few, um, but I think that they're, they're out there, especially some of the organizations that I mentioned that provide free services and free resources if you ever do need them. And I, and I like that because I think that's also the problem in a lot of places where someone has a lived experience. I wouldn't say they're assumed as an expert, but they are assumed to be that voice mm -hmm. that's going to change everything, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, tokenism, which I don't know if. I don't think I have the firm definition of tokenism. I just know that it's like, you know, you're put in like a position to speak for everyone and to fix everything from your identity. Like if you're in the mm -hmm. workplace, let's say, and I talk about mental health and they say, well, can you please help us with this mental health campaign? I'm like, why? Because I have mm -hmm. a condition. That's why. Yep. Am I going to get paid a little more for helping? Because if my job is shifting because of this, should I, should that reflect in my pay? Um, if it's extra workload in, if it's extra workload, you kind of deserve that extra pay if it really is going to impact your job like that. Mm -hmm. And I also wouldn't say I wouldn't, I wouldn't let, don't let people like also take advantage of you and, and like use the excuse of kindness where they say, well, it's just, I mean, don't you care about this community? Aren't you being a kind person by helping us out? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I've never experienced that, but I know that's been an example. And again, that to me is a little manipulative of mm -hmm. using their authenticity for your campaign when you could just hire a consultant, maybe, mm -hmm. or maybe hire more people or hire an organization that can help you. I mean, there are plenty of ways on how you can evaluate your campaign or your, your strategy and not exploiting your employees and using the excuse for kindness mm -hmm. because, again, their free labor 
is hurting them. It's, and it, it's nice that it benefits you. We have to think about them as well, especially if you're talking about topics that are really sensitive to them. Cause it's mm-hmm. not just, it's not just your, they're providing their, their, it's not that just they're, they're providing their perspective. They're also providing a perspective that's sensitive and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And for some, it's, that's not something they want to do in the workplace. I, I'm an advocate for always trying to make the workplace more vulnerable, but I think mm-hmm. it has to do with making sure that people have the choice. Mm-hmm. I, I'm never here for forced vulnerability because I think that's something I've been seeing in the mental health space where like people are pressured to talk. Mm-hmm. We need to talk. We need to be open. It's like, well, we need to be open the way you want people to be open. You know, especially when I'm thinking of men, you know, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, men have kind of been taught that, you know, emotions are opening up is a sign of weakness. You can't expect them to change overnight then. You can't. Mm-hmm. It's like, that won't work. And I, and you you can be as encouraging as possible, mm-hmm. but I do think that sometimes patience is a virtue when it comes to this because it's not easy for everyone and you might be open doesn't mean they're going to be open. I think mm-hmm. you can always be an encouraging voice, but it's not fair to pressure someone that's not ready either. Yeah. I think that that's such a powerful point too. Um, you know, some people, I think there's a lot of different ways that people process trauma or share their stories. Right. And Sometimes that's where we kind of the classic like oversharing or they start to tell everybody and that is a way of processing and it does help, you know, in a lot of people and that's appropriate and we we talk about boundaries and different things there. Um, But at the same time, other people are not in that place. And when you do get triggered or things like that in the workplace, like you talked about, that can be a really challenging piece. And um, I also wanted to circle back to one thing you said, because I think it was really important. Um, You know, you said kind of the, the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And you said, if somebody, you know, what is the DSM? So obviously I'm a counselor. I have given the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. Um, and one thing that I always like to tell people about the DSM is even though I'm technically an expert in counseling, right. Um, there are so many disorders that are not understood. And we just have this lovely label in the DSM up uh, DSM five right now of unspecified. And so keeping that in mind too, I think that applies with so many of them, because even if you have symptoms, right, how you're going to experience major depressive disorder is going to be very different. There may be similarities that would fall in that criteria, which is how we're able to give that diagnosis. But also it's not one size fits all, just like we're talking about with the intersectionality. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that piece because I think that um, we're really talking about how to embrace being unique and not also accepting anybody else to necessarily be an expert or understand that. Because I had a, I, I heard something in a, I used to work in a treatment facility for substance use disorder, residential program. And um I had a counselor, I overheard a counselor say this to a client and I have mixed feelings on it, but um, they were telling the client that it is not, they were using the, the wording of alcoholic, right? So again, this is kind of a label that some people identify um, with that's empowering. Some people do not. Um, but they said that the client as an alcoholic, it was not the world's job to understand or accept that the person was an alcoholic. So like in terms of they have to create their own safe space um, rather than expecting the world to do it for them. And I think that's a really piece that we're pushing against and also a hard reality for a lot of us. Yeah, it's interesting. I I have mixed feelings about that too, because, Mm -hmm. well, I understand because I actually do think 
I don't know. That can be empowering, but it can also have the opposite effect mm-hmm. <laughs> on, depending on who you're talking to. But I do think it is a good message slightly just because sometimes the world is not going to move forward. Sometimes mm-hmm. the world is not going to understand you. And when you're in, in those places of people not understanding you, if you're told that the world has to change to you, it's very, very frustrating. Mm-hmm. It, it's a very frustrating place to be in. But I think if you have this expectation that not everyone's going to understand and there are people that will not try to understand, mm-hmm. someone does react that way. It's like, okay, you know what? I get it. I'm going to move on then. I need to find my other safety net. I need to find my other, my own safe space. Unfortunately, that's how it is. It's kind of a good message. <laughs> I think it depends on how you say it. Right. I agree but with that. There's such good and bads with that one, but it is a harsh reality, like you're saying, though. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to my last question um, for us of we're talking about this idea of we have to, one, you said, create that safety network. How do you support yourself um, identifying as a male or queer, Hispanic, um, disabled male? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I mean, (laughs) I think that what's interesting is like, you know, what I don't think some people understand is like your identities do change. Mm -hmm. Even just your identities, like, not even just like, oh, I'm always going to be Hispanic. Right. But it's like that my perception of what it means to be Hispanic will change. Yes. 100%. You know, I, I don't, I don't traditionally look Hispanic. Some people have said I am. Some people said I'm not, which is always an interesting thing <laughs> to kind of <laughs> grapple with when people say that. Um, some people said I'm not, I'm not really Hispanic because I don't know Spanish. I just, I don't agree with some of these, how they're like, how they're justifying like racializing me just because I don't know mm-hmm. certain things or I do know certain things, but I do know myself when I do go to Mexico one day, or if I do learn Spanish, yes, it's going to very much change how I see myself as Hispanic. And when I start cooking more Mexican food. So it's always interesting how like the factors in your life do change your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's some identities that definitely do change. Like they could physically change. Like Sometimes I identify as gay, sometimes I identify as bisexual. It really depends. And then sometimes I'm just like, I don't really care anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, I don't really care. Sure. It's Fair really enough. not a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, except when I'm like writing stories or articles on being queer, I, I sometimes need to specify. I don't know sometimes how. Um, and with, yeah, so then there's that. So I will say that what I do for myself is, you know, I just, I try to be open. This helps me, not going to help everyone. Mm-hmm. But I just try to be open and I try to like, you know, involve myself in different groups that kind of align with how I feel. Like, you know, I'm co-lead at my job of the Disability Network. Mm-hmm. Would I be around people with disabilities? Would I know I'm around people with disabilities if I wasn't in the network? Probably not because people still have a hard time talking about it. Even when you look at the most progressive organizations, they still have a very low self-identification rate. Mm-hmm. There's only so much you can do. That doesn't mean that that's an excuse to not do anything. It's just saying that, you know, a lot of the bigger culture stuff has to shift as well, not just organizations. Right. The organizations can always be doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's what I do. So I joined like the Unexploring Network, which is like the queer network. And I just try to surround myself with people that, not necessarily think like me, but we do share certain identities and there's like an unspoken truth that we experience mm-hmm. um, that sometimes we don't even have to talk about. We just, we get it. We don't have to say anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, Oh, you, you know, so-and-so this happened and they go, Oh, I get that. You don't need to explain further. Like I totally get what that means. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't have to, um, you don't have to break guys. Sometimes there's already mm-hmm. some sort of layer that you both understand because of that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean you're going to be like bonded forever. Cause like there's sure. a million ways that we're going to be bonded. Um, but it is something that can bond mm-hmm. you in a way. And so 
that's kind of what I do. Um, I love that. I, it's like seeing a psychiatrist mm-hmm. and, you know, just having friends that hold me accountable and check on, check up on me and I check up on them as well. All that stuff always helps. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think that is amazing. That community that it takes, right? Like, you know, there's always that when I had my son, it was like, people were like, oh, it takes a village to raise a baby. It takes a village for everybody, right? Life is a challenge. It's challenging. It has different stressors and challenges. We have to have that community. Um, And that I love hearing that, that you've kind of built a supportive community, both at work with friends and having kind of those professional aspects in there as well. I think that that is a beautiful balance and I appreciate it so much with um, you sharing that with us. Uh, yeah, well, thank you so much again for having me and um, let me share my story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for our listeners, I also appreciate you hanging out with Zane and I. Um, I know your time is valuable and I'm going to put all of Zane's information in the episode notes so that if you want to get a, a hold of Zane, you absolutely can. Um, again, Zane, thank you so much for your time. And um, I'm looking forward to having the episode go live. Thank you. Me too. Thank you for hanging out with me on the Abundance Alchemist podcast. Don't forget to head over and grab your free self-love activation meditation at theabundancealchemist.com and hit subscribe here so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, sending you so much love.